Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Premier League Proven Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff. Here's my co-host, Kevin, my brother. And this is part two of a an episode series where we're basically talking about some of the structure of how European football and specifically the Premier League are set up so that you can kind of follow all of the things that you need to make sure that you know what people are talking about when you hear announcers and pundits and people writing articles or, or what they're talking about. Um, and this is some of the basics that you really just got to want to know if you're going to follow the sport. So first things first. First things first, we know it's a lot of information. And that's the great thing about podcasts is you can listen to them as many times as you want. So we encourage you to listen to our podcasts as frequently as you possibly can to, just to make sure that you are getting all of the information. We would not want you to leave here without capturing every single piece of information. Yes, yeah, so you just got to keep hitting replay. Uh, specifically, if you can do it from someone else's phone, that actually also works better too. Uh, but first off, exactly. So first off, uh, you know, the Premier League, even though this is a show primarily focused on the Premier League, which is, you know, for Americans is the best for us to follow generally because it's easy that everyone is expected to speak English, all the teams, social media, everything is in English. Uh, so it kind of just fits in that way. Uh, but there's a lot of other really good leagues across Europe, across the world as well. Um, there's really good leagues uh, in South America, the Argentinian League and Brazilian League in particular. Uh, but Europe is essentially the kind of the epicenter of soccer in the world in some ways. Uh, people not in Europe probably wouldn't like me saying that, but still La Liga is probably the most known other league. Uh, it's very famous, especially its two biggest clubs, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Uh, for players that play in Latin America, those teams really are the pinnacle. Even if you're an incredible player on a Premier League team, if you speak Spanish or Portuguese growing up, most of the time, your dream when you were a kid, when you were running around pretending that you were scoring goals, you were pretending to score goals for Real Madrid or Barcelona. Uh, so players like Cristiano Ronaldo, Luis Suarez, Coutinho, even players like Gareth Bale and David Beckham, those players, even though they were incredible in the Premier League, they all ended up testing themselves in, for with Real Madrid or Barcelona because to them, in some ways, that was the pinnacle. Uh, well, David Beckham a little bit aside, he was kind of pushed out. But either way, those teams are kind of, you could probably argue they're the two biggest clubs in the world, even though the Premier League is in itself the biggest uh, league out there. And then you have Serie A, which is an Italian league, and Italy really doesn't have any money anymore. They were pretty they, – they basically, around the year 2000 or so, spent crazy amounts of money. Uh, but basically nowadays, they can barely afford to have their own stadiums, let alone buy players from the Premier League. Uh, what that means is actually the Premier League ends up raiding Serie A and a lot, all the Italian leagues for players, essentially. So you'll see a lot of Premier League transfers coming from – uh, Italy and the Serie A. Uh, Germany has the Bundesliga, which is a really fun league. The biggest problem with it is that Bayern absolutely dominates it. I'm pretty sure they've just won 10 titles in a row, which I don't know. Even if you're a Bayern fan to me, I think that gets a little bit boring. Um, they do have a, a really cool fan-owned model. So essentially, by legal, basically, legally, every single team needs to be owned by the fans. Uh, 
of no Real Madrid and Barcelona are, are also owned by their fans. Um, they have a kind of crazy model, but um, they are also owned that way. Uh, what that means is that it's great, right? Like everything that the club does is essentially for the best interests of the fans. And so almost everyone would probably argue that Germany actually has the best fan culture, has the best setup, has the best connection between clubs and fans, um, because that can be pretty strained in England sometime. We'll talk to you about the Super League at some point in the future, but there's a lot of kind of drama between fans and clubs in in the Premier League. And is the is the club doing what's in the best interest of you know what the fans think? Um, but in Germany, that doesn't really exist where you have these outside ownership groups. So the Bundesliga can be a really fun league. It's you know it's just dominated by Bayern, um, and with no outside money, it's really hard to challenge that because of things like financial fair play. And then you have France, uh, which is Liga Un. I think they're also known, known as the Uber Eats League. So if you, uh, I don't know what they're, I guess they're trying to get Uber Eats to take off in Paris or something like that, but uh, order a baguette on Uber Eats. But anyway, <laughs> they have uh, PSG, who's owned by Qatar. Um, yes, the Middle East, pretty much every country there owns some team in the world, but they're kind of the Manchester City of France. They have tons of money. They had Mbappe and they had Messi, who now famously went to Inter Miami. Um, but they throw a ton of money around, but are just not very well run and literally have probably more money. They probably spend more money on Mbappe than every single other team spends on all of its players, essentially. They have literally 10 times as much money as every other team, and it makes the league pretty not that fun to watch. Uh, the Dutch League and the Portuguese League uh, are really famous leagues. Historically, they have huge clubs, Ajax, PSV, Feyenoord, Benfica, Porto, Sporting Lisbon. These are all incredibly big clubs with really storied histories. But the problem is, as the game has globalized, those basically their commercial rights, because they're in small countries, Netherlands and Portugal, they just don't have that same revenue coming in that the Premier League and La Liga do. And so the big problem is that they end up be, all being selling leagues where Huge numbers of the players that come into the Premier League will come from the Dutch League and the Portuguese League. Uh, they, especially the Portuguese League, acts as a kind of gateway for South American talent. And all of those clubs in Portugal and uh, Holland and the Netherlands are essentially dependent on selling players to the Premier League. That's kind of their business model. Yeah, and if you're kind of wondering, you know, it kind of a fantasy kind of way of thinking about sports, because of course all the French teams are only playing each other, um, all the German teams are only playing each other, and if you wanted to know, hey, this year, who would be the best team out of all these European leagues? Well, do not worry, there are some competitions out there across Europe every single year that answer those questions. And so kind of how it works nowadays, there's three big European club competitions that happen every single year. So the top tier competition is going to be the Champions League. Uh, the next tier down is going to be Europa League. And then the third tier, which is a very new but very interesting and cool format tournament, uh, is going to be the Conference League. And so these three competitions uh, kind of allow teams from all over Europe, not just the uh, leagues that we talked about, but even small uh, countries that have a professional league, the best teams from each of those have a chance to play across these competitions. And so it's kind of what people refer to as playing in Europe. And that means that you're playing in either the Champions League, the Europa League, or the Conference League. So the Champions League plays on 
usually Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Um, it's a little bit different of a format than what you see in the Premier League or any of these other leagues where you're just playing a home and away and whoever has the most amount of points wins. These are kind of like tournaments, uh, a little bit more similar to American sports. So you're kind of broken up into groups of four, and then the top two teams in that group of four kind of go into a two-legged bracket uh, kind of playoff system. And it's a very cool competition. It is definitely the pinnacle of club uh, glory is winning the Champions League. There are not a lot of teams that have ever done it. But you might be asking yourselves, how does a team get to play in the Champions League? Well, it really depends on what league in Europe that you're playing on. So the better leagues uh, get four and soon to be five slots that get the, the top five teams that get to play in the Champions League. So it's usually going to be England, Spain, Italy, Germany. These are the teams that are going to have the top four and soon to be five teams playing in the Champions League every single year. Yeah, and they all get put into a group stage. They play through that group stage, and then they go into you know a very familiar playoff bracket. You can kind of think of it as March Madness in some way, where you basically are seeded a little bit to start with and then get to play really these huge marquee matchups. And winning the Champions League, aside from winning the World Cup or winning the European Championship, which are both international competitions, there's really nothing above the Champions League. Uh, the Europa League is kind of a thing. It's kind of a consolation prize for English teams, uh, for like the really big English teams that didn't quite make it to the Champions League the year before. Uh, but it can serve as a good way to have still have a successful season uh, because the winner of the Europa League actually gets to go play in the Champions League the season after. It's a lot less prestigious than the Champions League, but it's still winning silverware. It generally signals that your club is going in the right direction, so it can still be a really important, really fun competition. And like you were saying, you actually get to play – you know, when you play in the Champions League, you're going to like Milan or you're going to Madrid or you're going to – Munich, you're playing, you know, big teams uh, in big European cities. When you play in the Europa League and then let alone the Conference League, you're going to play like some Ro Romanian team. You're going to Cyprus. Uh, you're basically taking a private plane with your million dollar players and just showing up to like some local stadium where with against players that basically make a tenth or a hundredth as much money as you do. And it's always classic for some English team to go away to like, I don't know, like some team in Turkey or something and basically put on some terrible performance, lose two nil after flying, you know, a couple thousand miles and uh, lose to some team with players that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. Being in Europa in the conference league is a great way to learn European geography. You really do need to pull up uh, the old Google machine and be like, where the hell is this place? And uh, who is this team that I've never heard of? We're Americans. All right. I mean, if, if Americans are listening to this and you're trying to teach them geography, they're going to turn off the podcast in a second. So you don't have to learn anything. All right. You just got to listen to us. But, uh, it's actually really fun, especially that conference league, which is new because teams like West Ham, who are kind of these mid-table teams, they don't really expect to win anything every year, any year, really. And so they, those teams can kind of go decades without ever winning any silverware, which can kind of be a bit of a slog, especially for the fans. But the conference league, because the teams in the Champions League and the Europa League don't get to play in the conference league, it has some... It has a lot of the teams that are still decent, but not the kind of elite out of the elite teams. And it gives an opportunity for 
more mid-table teams to win some silverware. And so West Ham had a terrible year in the Premier League. They didn't get relegated, but were kind of close. But they won their first silverware in decades. And honestly, the way that David Moyes, who's been a manager for 20-something years, I don't think he'd ever won anything before. All those players, this was for most of them the first trophy that they've ever lifted and it really you could tell how much it meant to the players the manager the fans even though you know some people might regard it as you know kind of a you know quote-unquote mickey mouse cup or something that's not important it's important it means a ton to the people that are playing in it to the fans that get to go on these european away trips go follow their team across europe and see their team you know victorious triumphant i mean that's you, you follow this game because it means so much emotionally, but those moments make a lot of this stuff really worth it. Those are things that'll stay with you a lifetime. And so I'm glad that they've added all these different tiers of European competition. It was not always like this. And, uh, but I think overall, it's been a good thing for everyone. Yeah. And just talking about the finances of a club, just qualifying for these competitions gives your teams a lot of extra money. Of course, the Champions League is going to give you the most because it's the biggest and the best teams. You're getting tens of millions of dollars just by qualifying for the Champions League. So it's kind of a reward for teams, especially if you're not one of the classic big six or now big seven teams. You can kind of sneak into one of those European slots. It's just a, another way for you to pull some revenue in uh, to your team. Yeah. And when you're buying players, you a lot of the really good players in the world all want, you know, their careers are short. They all want to play in the Champions League. So going and being able to offer Champions League football means that your team is much more uh, is in a much better position when trying to recruit new and better players in the future. And just to be clear, it can be a little bit confusing, but all Champions League, Europa League, Conference League qualification is based on last year's results. So if you finished in the top four last year, you'll play in the your one of these European level or the Champions League this year. So you could have an awful year this year in the Premier League finished 15th or something. But if you did well last year, you'll still be in the Champions League this year. If you don't do well this year, you won't make it for next year. But it's always a little there's always that lag there where the qualification is based on who was good last year, which makes it a little confusing because you can see a team not doing well in the Premier League and be like, why are they in the Champions League? That doesn't make much sense. But it's because they did well in the season before. And I will just say that everybody wants to play in Europe. You know, every team wants to, but squads are actually also built. To, uh, some managers really like having a small squad of guys that they can really get a good, fluid, efficient system built into them with a good understanding between players. And if you basically adding European games adds a lot of games to your schedule. So you're adding 10, 12, 14 games to your schedule. And that puts a lot more tread, a lot more wear on on your players' legs that can make it a lot more difficult to sustain end-of-the-season pushes. So you will often hear people talking about this season, you know, even though we had a terrible year last year, this that just means that this year we can go full out for the Premier League because we don't have the the kind of worry or the bother of having to play all these European games. We can plan and game plan for our next opponent, train for our next opponent, stay fresh for our next opponent while the other teams have to basically jet around Europe and play midweek games. Yeah. So just to sum it up on uh, when to watch the champions league, Europa league and the conference league. So again, champions league is going to play on usually Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And that's usually going to be around 3 PM uh, East, East coast time. 
And then the Conference League in Europa play on Thursdays also around at 3 p.m. East Coast time. So a little bit hard to watch some of those competitions, but we all have smartphones nowadays, so never above just having Champions League on you know, while you're in the office uh, while you're pretending to do some work. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, but the other two things that are outside of Europe, but also I think can get really confusing for people that are just getting into soccer is kind of the League Cup and the FA Cup. So every league, the all the leagues that we talked about, La Liga in Spain, Serie A in Italy, they all have a domestic cup. England just tries to be a little extra confusing because they actually have two cups. One is called the FA Cup. One is called the League Cup. These are kind of competitions in and of themselves that are outside of the Premier League, but they're still made up of all the Premier League teams. The FA Cup in particular is the oldest competition uh, in the world in terms of soccer. It's actually really cool because any team can win. Like You could literally sign up with your buddies. As long as you do it through the FA, you can basically make your own club with your buddies down at the pub uh, sign up, join the the lowest division of English football, which is, I don't know, something like the 13th or 14th tier or something like that. And in theory, you could win enough times. You know, if you had a, a, a genie that basically let you cheat and win every single game, you could end up playing Manchester United in the cup final at the end of the year, even though you guys are just a bunch of scrubs. Obviously, these days, it's a lot harder for that to happen with how much money's in the game, etc. But that's kind of what people mean when they say magic of the cup, because you can really get these Steph Curry on Davidson college basketball stories where basically you get these crazy upsets teams that don't deserve to not to don't not deserve. That's the wrong word, but don't generally get to play on this level guys who will never reach this tier in their own careers, but they took down some big premier league team uh, in the fourth round of the cup. And even if they didn't win it, they'll dine out. They'll remember that for the rest of their lives. That's something that, you know, they'll always be famous for. Yeah. It's always really cool too. When you have a premier league team that ends up playing a a team that's in the sixth or so division, you'll, you'll get these cool stories and articles that come out where, you know, I'm a premier league player. I have the best facilities. This is what I've been doing my entire life. And I'm playing a guy who's an accountant and had to call his boss and say, Hey boss, I'm playing Manchester City tomorrow. I'm going to need to call out. So it's just a really unique competition. Uh, It's really cool. And it's a great way for some of the teams in the lower leagues to get some money. Uh, So you almost always split the revenue of wherever you're playing. So if you're a team that plays in a very small stadium and doesn't really generate a lot of revenue, but you get far enough in the competition and you place someone, let's say like Liverpool, well, Liverpool is a huge stadium and it's probably going to sell out. So you're going to get half of that revenue and that's going to be able to fund your team for the future. So again, that is the FA cup or the football association. Just kind of think of them as the governing body for uh, all, I guess, professional and semi-professional soccer teams and competitions in England. And the FA cup used to mean like a huge amount. It almost used to be on the same level in terms of prestige as the, winning the equivalent of the premier league. It doesn't really anymore, but it's still an opportunity for trophies. It's still very meaningful. And everything I kind of said about the conference league and Europa league still applies to the FA cup, lifting the actual effect of just winning a competition, lifting a trophy in a year basically gives your team a huge amount of motivation, gives, tells the fans that you're in the right, going in the right direction and, can really be a boost to the club and you know you really 
you're a lot of the reason that we watch soccer at the end of the day is also just to see our team win things, do well in the end, have those great experiences together. So, yeah. And so the other competition, the domestic cup is going to be what's called the league cup. So this one is less prestigious than the FA cup. And it's actually only going to be the top four uh, divisions in England. So again, the top is going to be the premier league, uh, the championship league one and league two. So unlike the FA cup that has all of the teams that are kind of in it, the league cup is only going to have teams that are in the top four. And I think it also, can we just like think about like how crazy those names are championship? I mean, it makes sense because the championship used to be the top level until they made the premier league, but having a, the second league called the championship and then having the third league called league one and then having the fourth league called league two, I guess it, it does make, you know, we've been watching it so long that I think it all makes sense to us. But you know, if you're someone getting into it and you're like, that sounds kind of dumb. I now that I'm kind of hearing it spelled out, yeah, it does sound kind of dumb. It's like you're yeah, right. Commit to a number system or don't. And then as you go further down, you'd be like, oh well, logically, we're we're in the numbers now, so let's keep going numbers. Nope, we're gonna throw you for a curveball, and we're gonna say the fifth tier is going to be the National League. You know, uh, it's just it makes no sense. I don't know how they came up with it or what the thought process was, but. Yeah, it just sounds like, I don't know, maybe marketing execs that were just sitting there and trying hard to come up with a, a really super cool new name for uh, whatever the, the next tier is going to be. Um, but also, the League Cup is sometimes referred to as the Carabao Cup, which I think is a energy drink over in the UK. I don't think it's made its way to the States, probably because you know we have enough energy drinks that are over here right now. Uh, but it's got a really weird logo with uh, some like I think it's like bullhorns, and it makes me think of uh, um, what, what's that movie where uh, I think it's is it Paul Rudd in there where they uh, they kind of oh, have no idea yeah, role models like yes, where they basically yes, run yes. around with the Minotaur truck. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That's an incredible call. I mean, it's basically exactly like that. It's just it's a weird uh, green. Uh, energy drink sponsor but they change the names of these every year so if you've ever heard it called the barclays premier league that's because barclays i guess the bank used to sponsor it they hate it when you call it barclays now because they're trying to get somebody else to sponsor it and pay more money uh it's kind of like xerox or something but anyway uh the league cup you know good thing to win but uh generally a smaller competition and then you know if you've been following soccer you're interested in soccer There's no way you haven't heard of the World Cup. No way that you haven't seen some of these international games. Uh, And there's a huge difference uh, between the international game and the the club game. Yeah, this is where it becomes really cool and unique to soccer from a lot of other sports out there is you kind of have a separation of players that are playing for their club teams, but that are also playing for their national teams. So we don't want you to get confused when you hear a guy like, you know, Lionel Messi, for example. He's playing in the U.S. in the MLS now, uh, but he's from Argentina. So how does that really make sense that he plays for Argentina for his international team? But then when he's on his club team, he's in the States. Well, the difference is when there are international tournaments, so what you've, I'm sure, have heard of as the World Cup. um, And honestly, each of the continents have a tournament that happens every four years as well. 
but these are these international competitions where the best players from a lot of club teams get to play uh, for their national teams. But you also get a little bit of decision on who you play for. It's not just where you're born. To be able to qualify for a national team, uh, it can be where your parents are from or where your grandparents are from. And there's some other weird citizenship laws that you are kind of uh, can get you to play for a different team. So at the youth level, you'll a lot of times see players kind of jumping around or playing for one country and then switching before they get to the senior level. Uh, but basically, once you play for the senior team, and again, we're saying by senior team is that is going to be you know the United States men's national team. That is the senior team. Once you play for them one time and you get what's called being capped, uh, you are locked in and you can no longer switch no matter if you're, your parents are from another country. Yeah, and it's really cool, actually. You know, you'll see teams fighting for some guy whose mom is from America and his dad's from England, and they're trying to decide. He's trying to; they're try, each trying to convince him to play for their team. I would say there's definitely some players that kind of go for the more patriotic element, the team they feel the most connection with. But I think a lot of the players try to play for the best team basically available to them, which kind of makes sense. These guys are extremely driven and competitive and they want to play on the team at the highest level that they can. But you'll see some guys like Gareth Bale, who at one time was one of the absolute best players in the world, played for Wales, which is, you know, a tiny country, three, four million people. Uh, If you've watched Welcome to Wrexham, you know, that's Wales. It's this tiny place. And, you know, he's, they basically have maybe six, seven Premier League players on the whole team. And he's by far the best one. And that's just how it goes. And, but he gets to lead his team to success that it's never, you know, quite seen before. Just making things like the European Championships uh, or the World Cup, those are really special moments for especially those smaller countries, especially when they get one of those one or two of those really generational talents. It means a huge amount to to those countries. So, international soccer is just a really fun thing uh, to watch as well. Yeah, I, I really do feel bad for. Uh, players who are trying to pick their national teams. Because just like you're saying, everyone's trying to jockey to see who's the best team uh, I can play for. But it's got to be so hard. You know, if you're a phenom coming out on the scene and you're starting to play really well for your club, you're getting call calls from the national team coaches. It's got to be really hard to say, hey, I am 17 or 18 right now. Um, I can either play for, let's say, the U.S. or England. I know I'm good enough to play for the U.S. and probably have a decently long career with them. I don't know if I'm quite good enough right now to play for England. And if I make that choice to to play for England one time, then I'm basically locked in for life. And if my career didn't really pan out or I don't become the player that I thought I might be, I may never be able to play uh, in a World Cup or any international competitions because... I'm not quite good enough to make the English team. So it's really, it's got to be really tough for these kids at such a young age to try to project out their careers and make those decisions. And, hey, the U.S. just got Balogun. So, you know, that was a pretty big get. And he's exactly one of these guys. And he ended up deciding that he wanted to try his luck with the U.S. And uh, he actually scored a, his first couple goals for the USA recently. But uh, the one of the biggest ways that you actually see is that international soccer as it relates to the Premier League is just kind of as an annoyance because sometimes they'll just take random weeks off in the middle of the Premier League season and they usually will go play two or three international friendlies. 
And those are terrible in some ways because they don't mean much. And it's just an opportunity for your players to get hurt and basically takes away a Premier League weekend from you. So those are kind of those off weekends, uh, which are kind of called international weekends, uh, where you won't see the Premier League playing. And it's often because they're going and playing friendlies. And so the next thing and the last thing in this episode and it can be a i'm sure it'll be a little bit tough to listen to but we're going to do our best to make sure that you have some understanding of how teams actually line up and what the formations look like in soccer so if you look at the history or if you ever played soccer growing up they probably put you in a 4-4-2 system growing up that's kind of the classic that's what everyone in america kind of learned growing up because we have no creativity and just did whatever the english do and you might say there's 11 players on the field. Why is something 4-4-2? If you add that up, those up, it's only 10. What about that 11th player? So every formation that I'm going to give you actually just assumes that there's a goalkeeper in net. You know, by the time, maybe uh, by 2295, they'll figure out how to play uh, without a goalkeeper and they'll have to change how they uh, sequence these formations. But until then, always just assume that there's a goalkeeper in net. Yeah, that math checks out from somebody who's been calculating wages week to week rather than just uh, an easy yearly salary. Yeah, exactly. So you'll, 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 no, you don't have to do any math to follow this. If you did, I don't think uh, most of the people that follow the, the Premier League in England would be able to. Uh, but anyway, the uh, when you say something like 442, what they're actually talking about, that first number signifies how many players are in defense, the second number signifies how many players are in the midfield and then the third number signifies how many players are in attack um, so you have your defenders your midfielders and then your attackers uh, there can sometimes be a fourth number thrown in there that usually means that midfield is broken up into defensive midfield and attacking midfield um, but the classic formation that you'll hear is four four two so right that means four defenders four midfielders and two strikers uh, or two forwards. And that system, you know, when we were growing up, has two center midfielders, two wide players who are kind of wide midfielders or wingers. And then that big striker up top and that small guy that usually plays off him. That big guy up top is usually known as a striker, and the guy that plays behind him is actually called a number 10 oftentimes or a second striker. This is probably the most famous position in all of soccer history. If you think about all the greatest players, a lot of the most technically skilled attacking players that have ever played the game, a lot of them played the number 10 position. That's because this number 10 position historically is built for these guys who are creative, can score, uh, basically can dominate with their skills. It was traditionally not a position that demanded a lot of defensive responsibility. It was basically the creative outlet, the attacking outlet, the most important player on everyone's team. But as soccer has become undergone kind of a revolution, like I think all sports have where it's become more efficient, more analytical, more data driven most teams have realized that it's actually almost never worth it unless you literally have like Lionel Messi on your team. It's almost never worth it to give up that defensive responsibility and let a player basically drift and do whatever he wants, no matter how good he is. And so now the number 10 position, which has always been considered kind of a luxury position, has been 
in some ways removed or at least a lot very lessened from the game in terms of its impact and if and those teams that do have a number 10 which there are still a good bit those number 10s now need to be as defensively adept as they are good at attacking uh, but the 442 transition to the 433 in large part because they figured out hey maybe we don't need this number 10 if we create a more efficient attacking system as a whole our team can actually be better and if you listen to the history of the premier league podcast the that we did earlier arson wenger was a big promo, big proponent eventually of creating the 433 jose Mourinho also created uh, or really perfected the 4-3-3 where you have four defenders three players that play in midfield and then three attackers one in the center and two out wide this system has become the dominant system in european soccer because it's just a really good blend of attack and defense uh i do just want to clarify that if you think of formations are really do not explain how teams are set up how teams play there's so much more complexity depth to it uh, than just that numbering system for example you could have two teams that both play 4-3-3 uh, when they show the lineups at the beginning of the game but they can play completely differently uh, and the the way that a team sets up is much more dependent on how those players are going to interact with each other but if you think about formations you can almost think about soccer as you would football with three different phases so you have the attacking phase when you have the ball you have the defensive phase when your opponent has the ball and then you have the transition phase which is about that five seconds when the ball gets turned over or changes hands that transition phase is extremely important for scoring goals that's the entire idea behind Klopp's Jurgen Klopp's of Liverpool's gegenpressing system and the German gegenpressing pressing system is that those transition periods are really important. But basically you should know that when we're talking about these formations, you're really only talking about the attacking formation. Most teams in the Premier League will end up defending in a 4-4-2 formation. It's just a, a formation that's stood the test of time in terms of its defensive output and defensive potential. And so if you think of the number 10, Basically, they assigned all these positions to jersey numbers back in, in the past. It used to be that you actually couldn't pick your jersey number. You actually were assigned your jersey number based on what position you were going to play. But the numbers, if you ever hear anybody talking about these things, especially in something like a four-three-three, a number six is a defensive midfielder, someone that isn't going to go forward as much. A number eight is a midfielder that's considered box to box, which means that he's going to run the distance from his own box to defend all the way to the opponent's box to attack. And different midfielders are basically created in different ways. So you can have all kinds of different midfielders with different talents and different profiles. But anyway, the 4-4-2 was classic. The 4-3-3 is basically what most teams play nowadays. You also have kind of an alternative version of the 4-3-3, which is the 4-2-3-1, which is also extremely common. It's kind of a way to get the number 10 back into the team. Uh, you take one of those of the three midfielders, you kind of push one forward into that number 10 position and then drop the other two back into more defensive positions. And this creates this, this 4-2-3-1 formation, which you'll often see written on the lineup sheets before any game as well. Do they play all that much differently? It really depends on the personnel. 
Um, so the formations are important, but I wouldn't get too, too focused on them sometimes. It's more of how the teams are structured and how the, the manager sets them up to play. I will say that something that you'll see quite a bit in the Premier League, too, is a three-at-the-back system. This can kind of be considered either a three-at-the-back system or a five-at-the-back system. And you in this formation, you have three people at the back that are all center backs. And then you'll have something like a three, four, three, where the fullbacks who are those outside defenders will be pushed upfield. And you have wing backs that also are considered uh, basically need to defend, but also are asked to get up and down the field. So the three at the back is kind of a misnomer because in some ways it's almost five at the back where in some ways it can be a little bit more defensive, but it can be a, a more structured and solid way to play a lot of teams will switch to a formation or change formations when their personnel that they have just fits that better. For example, if they lost one of their good fullbacks, they might switch to something at three at the back because his replacement can't do what the first guy had been asked to do. And sometimes when a team's not playing very well, that you'll see the manager just for whatever reason, just to see if he can kind of luck into it, just switch formations into a three at the back or five at the back or just change how the team is set up, just hoping that they can kind of stumble into a spark that's going to make their team succeed going forward. Yeah, I think it's a great intro into tactics. And yeah, like the big takeaway for this episode is just to let you kind of understand the language. So you're kind of on the same sheet of music. And when you're hearing any kind of announcer talk about the game, it won't sound as much like a foreign language uh, because, you know, at times it definitely literally is a foreign language, but uh, at least you'll be able to kind of have a, a decent understanding of what that looks like. And I think you did a great job of summing up some of the big formations that a lot of people will see. All right, guys. So thanks for listening. Um, the next group of podcasts that we're going to do is the ones that we're really excited to do, which is the overviews of a lot of the big teams in the Premier League. We're using these episodes that are coming up as a way to help you guys pick a team to be a fan of, uh, to support, uh, hopefully lifelong. And so we're going to give you everything that you need to know about those teams, their history, their current teams, you know, what they've been through in the past and what to expect going forward. And also, you know, what we call the hope to heartbreak scale, uh, because honestly, watching soccer, just like watching any sport is mostly heartbreak. And then, you know, maybe if you're, lucky or if you follow manchester city then you'll get some uh you'll get some uh good moments built into there as well but either way send us a message with anything that you guys want to hear us talk about anything that you guys think that we should cover or further explain and uh we'd love to to kind of form a community with you guys and follow the premier league together so yeah feel free to send out a comment in whatever platform that you're listening to this on or reach out to us at Premier League Proven. We're on most socials, so we'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening.